I spent some time uh, because these guys were cool crawling over one of the ambulances that, that they used to evacuate the soldiers. It was Ren a Renault traffic or a Peugeot traffic. But in any case, it was a French ambulance. And from what I could see, at least initially, it was, you know, properly equipped with all the drawers and, you know, IV stuff and so on. But it's a soft vehicle and it's designed for hard roads. And it had clearly been used very hard and uh, the suspension was going. And uh, one of the ambulance drivers had taken flak vests, you know, some body armor and hung it on the, the passenger window and hung another one on the driver's window and closed the window and put a couple more on the seat. And the idea was that uh, these things are completely unarmored and uh, at least that would be, you know, armor the driver a little bit. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and this week we are going out of country. I do like to get uh, some international guests on. Uh, and today we're in Kiev with Stefan Korshak, who's a senior defence correspondent at the Kiev Post. Stefan, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Obviously, everybody in the world is following what's going on uh, in Kiev and in the Ukraine right now. Uh, before we get to that point, why don't you give us your backstory? How does an American from Houston end up in Kiev? Well, um, I'm a reporter by uh, trade and profession. I've been doing that for about 30 years. Um, I've uh, done almost all of my work in the former Soviet Union, so I'm very comfortable in uh, this part of the world. I've worked for newspapers, wire services, television. Uh, currently, I'm working for the oldest English language newspaper uh, in Ukraine. It's called Kiev Post. Uh, prior to uh, joining Kiev Post, I was uh, an American member of the uh, International Monitoring Mission that was operating in um, the Donbass region. And uh, I've uh, done a lot of uh, conflict zone work in the former Soviet space. And, uh, you know, there's a conflict here, so I'm doing my job here. That is sort of the short version of how I wound up here. And I guess, and to name drop and for full disclosure, we actually became connected through a mutual friend, Duncan Spinner, who I served in the British Army with, and obviously you've served out there in Ukraine with, right? Yep, yep, yep. That's absolutely true. Um, so, although um, Duncan is a military man, and I'm, uh, I, I was in the service. I during the Cold War, I spent a, a bit of time with the American infantry in Germany. But what I am is a, a journalist, a foreign correspondent, a reporter. That's what I am. Well, so two shout outs there then. One to Duncan, because I'm going to send you the link, mate, so I know you're listening. And two, uh, a, a man from Fort Benning. So, hua to you, sir. So, uh, well, cool. I, I definitely went through Fort Benning, you know, well, school for boys. Happy days. Perhaps that's another episode. So, 
Um, we're watching the news, though, uh, Stefan. But uh, you know, what's the situation this week? It looks like the tide is turning in terms of from defence to offence. So, from a, in a, bearing in mind this is kind of an EMS show, but uh, you know, give us a general sort of appreciation of the situation right now. General appreciation, I would say, is that the Ukrainians are convinced that they are going to win. They are convinced that the uh, Russians have uh, put their foot in it, and now they can't get out. Uh, they are sure that the uh, Russians are poorly commanded and that they are suffering heavy, heavy casualties. Uh, there are Ukrainian offensives taking place, but they are small scale. And uh, the feeling is that the Russians still have a lot of combat power. It's poorly commanded, uh, but it's still out there. And that the Ukrainians are not going to charge forwards because that would cost lots of lives to the Ukrainians feel that time is on their side. They are waiting for the uh, Western uh, weapons and material to show up. Some of it's moving. A lot of it is promised. It certainly is not in the field yet. The expectation is that it will be in the field. And uh, once the uh, Ukrainian military gets all that equipment and uh, gets its men trained on that equipment, then uh, they will slowly take their country back. I don't think that they're thinking in terms of making Russia surrender. I don't think that they believe that uh, what they will do will make Russia collapse. I don't think that they're thinking any more uh, in, any, in terms any more uh, complicated than once we get the combat power to force the Russians out of our country bit by bit, little by little, that's what we're going to do. So long term. And um, they're looking, they're, they're thinking weeks, excuse me, they're thinking months. Um, they don't say years, but some of them will, if you talk to them off the record, will say this could take years. But it's absolutely optimistic. It's a bit almost like the philosophy going back to Ho Chi Minh, where he said, you know, we don't have to win. We just make sure, we must make sure we just don't lose. And yeah, the, I think, the attrition however, will, will that take the Ukrainians it. are, um, they're, I, I was just returned from a reporting trip uh, to the troops on the line, and they have not so much respect for the Russians and the way that the Russians fight. They are convinced, the Ukrainians are, that you know, given even reasonable firepower, they will push the Russians out of their country. It's not outlasting the Russians, it's defeating them. That's the mindset, honestly. Pretty much yeah. everybody in the military that I've talked to. And, you know, the, the social media information you know, war and campaign is going on. I mean, on newspapers yesterday, the day before, were full of the Donetsk, Donetsk I can't pronounce it, the Donetsk River, um, the, the, the river crossing there, obviously the uh, the blow there, which must work two ways on morale, good for Kiev, really, really bad for the Russians. And of course, morale is one of those uh, principles of war that if you get wrong, you're going to lose. Uh, yeah, Ukrainian morale uh, took a hit in the beginning because they were more confident and their ability to fight the Russians than pretty much anybody. Um, but in the first few days, it just wasn't completely clear exactly how efficient the Russians would be, how good their plan would be, and the degree to which the Ukrainians could uh, physically resist the Russians. After about two or three days, it became clear that, okay, the Russians might be able to attack, but the Ukrainians were going to make them pay. And they were, and, and and as time went on, the Ukrainians got to be very, very good uh, using, among other things, British and law missiles, very effective. And uh, there's a great. Everybody understands that there's a breaking point where units can't 
take casualties uh, forever, and at some point, units become dysfunctional. And it's clear from uh, the prisoners of war that the Ukrainians are taking uh, and the social media intercepts that are just out there in great masses that the Russian army has a huge morale problem and that, yes, they can attack, but they can't attack with everything because clearly they can't get everybody to attack. And every time they do attack, the soldiers that are willing to attack for the Russians, a lot of them get hit. And it's uh, not sustainable um, right now what the Russians are trying to do as far as the Ukrainians are concerned. I'm absolutely full of quotes today, Stefan. But as Napoleon said, moral is to physical as three is to one. If you don't have the morale, you can be as fit as you want and as intentional yeah, as you want. And it I throw that quote around a lot. I think that that's absolutely correct. And uh, the closer you get to the line of contact, the higher the morale is uh, with the Ukrainians. Um, if you get to one of the very frontline units where uh, uh, that's actually sort of not really part of the regular forces. There's a lot of sort of pickup units of volunteers and former, you know, special forces guys, and they're doing really real military activity, but not fully within the framework of the regular army. They are not exactly having fun. It's a real war. You can get hurt, but uh, they want to take the fight to the Russians, and they really feel like you know all they need is a bit more firepower, and they'll do it even more. Actually, that's that's a good point, and and we'll get onto the kind of medical stuff in a minute. But fairly early on, there's a lot of people that want to come to Ukraine. There's a kind of a foreign legion going on. I think it was President Zelensky perhaps saying that you know if if you're a World of Warcraft sort of uh, one of those gamers, this is not the one for you. You can't reset, stand up, and carry on. And uh, you know, how are you treating those uh, you know dare I say foreigners that are coming in to volunteer? Is there a screening process to make sure you're not just a gamer? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. uh, There's a process like that that. uh, happens in uh, the news industry, um, where you get lots of parachute journalists and a good percentage of posers, and uh, they get winnowed out. Basically, the closer you get to the line of contact, the less you'll have people actually willing to uh, do real reporting as opposed to appear that they're doing real reporting. And I was, uh, I have read and I have talked to people that that's the same sort of process is happening uh, with uh, foreign volunteers. You get it, you know, you get gamers, you get people who really don't know what they're getting into. And uh, honestly, frankly, um, I've read reports of uh, of very qualified uh, military professionals uh, that have come to this country with a background in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they have, you know, done their time, gone in and then backed out because the, the, the conclusion was that the, uh, this, this kind of fight, it's, it's a full-on conventional war. The individual isn't really as important as the equipment and uh, the ammunition. And uh, it's a nice thing to think that if you're a highly trained uh, NATO soldier, that you can come here and make a difference and you can come and help. But your knowledge is not going to make a huge difference because you're joining a military that's been at war for eight years. And the Ukrainians have been fighting the Russians that long, not theoretically, but a real hot war. And uh, there's a level of skill and knowledge, at least within uh, that, the framework of this particular conflict that, you know, makes the Ukrainians competent. So foreigners coming, it's like it's nice. 
And uh, if they're really motivated, that's good. There's a there's a group of Georgians that are, uh, as I understand it, very effective. There's a smaller group of Chechens that are very good. There's uh, um, you can see small groups of Americans and, you know, that which is really just Anglo-Saxons. So Canadians and British and sometimes right. even South Africans. And they're out there uh, helping um, on the edges of the uh, main force. But at the end of the day, units like that, groups like that are um, men in light vehicles with anti-tank uh, missiles and uh, some radios and they can do some good. But frankly, you know, what you what you need are battalions of artillery with train loads of uh, artillery ammunition. You need companies of tanks. It's a very intensely mechanized war. So that has the effect of uh, making it less an appealing conflict for, let's say, the average foreign military tourist, and it also makes it a lot more dangerous. I've uh, I, I, I spent four years on the line of the Donbass conflict. I was, in, I was in the Georgia War and several of the other um, former Soviet wars. This is nothing like that. This is a really dangerous war with an awful lot of uh, metal flying around. I, basically, if, if it's the actual combat, you're never, ever going to see the person who shoots you. And uh, it's not the kind of place where, you know, you can run up to the front of the line, you know, fire some... Uh, 5.56 rounds downrange and do something. Those are really interesting words, of course. You know, I, I think back 40 years of the British and Argentina in the Falklands War. That's probably, to my memory, in my mind, the last army on army, you know, war we've had versus the insurrections that we've had, uh, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the enemy is certainly there, but the quality, number, content and you know, arms nature of that opposition has never been there. And so I, I really take your points about, uh, you know, and it's interesting you call them military tourists. And uh, uh, that's something that, that I think will resonate with people that are listening. Well, to well I mean, not all. There are some guys, there are some guys and they just, you know, an absolute asset, but not all. I mean, but that, and that's the nature of war, I think. Mm. I mean, you're going to, and, and you'll get it, um, like, as I said, you'll get it in the um, news industry. You'll get it in the NGO assistance uh, side of things. I mean, wars will attract a certain contingent of people, and not all of them really should be there, but they don't know that till they get there. The wearing of the press uh, body armor does not maketh the journalist. So, uh, well, there we you go. Know, no, no, oh. you know, and a shell splinter doesn't really care what's on your body armor. It's just a shell, shell splinter. Absolutely. You know? Stefan, we're just going to take a second and go to a message from our sponsors. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back to EMS One Stop. Today we're in Kiev with uh, Stefan Korshak. Uh, Stefan, in the first half uh, we had uh, a really good discussion and thank you for the briefing on the kind of general situation. But the Ukraine itself is also a humanitarian disaster area. It may, may well be fair to say that. Obviously there is a lot of misplaced millions of misplaced individuals 
and clearly a lot of battle casualties for both sides occurring. But let's take that in two parts. So what's the humanitarian civilian side? Obviously, we're watching places like Mariupol and uh, and, and Kharkiv and other places. But uh, how internally are you looking after, and I say the, the Ukrainian, you looking after those misplaced uh, civilians? Well, if you're talking about the displaced people, uh, family links are strong and a sense of, uh, if you like, uh, uh, of community and of people in a village being obliged to help other people in need is relatively strong. Uh, you, It's harder in this country, I would say, to walk past a stranger in need, all things being equal, than, let's say, in some of the larger cities in the West. And so um, most of the people who have been displaced have wound up uh, with relatives somewhere else in the country, it seems to me. I mean, I'm sure that there are hard statistics out there. I'm just telling you my impression. Those that have not uh, have not have uh, in some cases uh, simply found housing that uh, is not that that is affordable and that suits the purpose um, I can give you an example. Uh, my wife is Ukrainian and I have Ukrainian relatives. My brother-in-law, uh, we too, were forced to uh, flee from um, a village near Kiev because it turned out that one of the enveloping movements around Kiev that the Russians were trying to execute basically were in its path. So um, my uh, being an American, I had the option of uh, sending my wife and daughter to the States which is ultimately what we did. My brother-in-law being a man of military age, they wouldn't let him out of the country. So what did he do? He found through a friend of a friend, somebody who was willing to simply donate um, a a house that wasn't being lived in on the Romanian border. Um, Basically, it was a summer house. And uh, so uh, the the bathroom was outside and that kind of thing. But it was livable. And uh, that seems to me to be happening millions and millions of times. Um, I have not heard of, uh, 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 of displaced people not being able to find a place to stay. Uh, the government assists, the volunteers assist, but there's a big um, support network within the country. And I would say that based, you know, if I were to compare it with the United States in general, it's a better, um, it's a healthier society in that sense. Uh, it's, it's not very easy for anybody to just sort of ignore somebody if they come up and say, look, I need help, do something. So that's my impression anyway. It's, it's a bit like uh, they described the British in 1942 and called it the Blitz spirit. We're all in yeah. this together and therefore yeah, yeah. we just need to help each other. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, there is something to that, I think. I, I wasn't at the Blitz, but I've read lots of your history, and uh, there are similarities, certainly. One of the, the, the posts, and uh, I'm, I'm very lucky enough to read your sort of daily blog from the front line, Stefan, and I think it's absolutely amazing, and the, and the level of detail research uh, is, is quite something, and, uh, and I don't know if, if that is widely shared, but I certainly, uh, certainly enjoy reading it. But let's talk for a second about uh, medicine and evacuation and uh, a few days ago, you put up a, a blog about the chain of evacuation, let's call it that, for those that are sort of military-minded. A soldier is wounded on the front line, um, you know, from, from what you've seen. What is the chain of evacuation from what you saw, and does it work well or not? I think under the circumstances overall, and again, not being a medical professional, it works well. 
it certainly works well enough. I would qualify that by saying that um, what I'm gonna what what I, what I say about it is based on um, a visit to a uh, one of the better units. It's called 25th Airborne Brigade, and I just I went to that unit and talked to a bunch of people there, including medics. And also what information is out there in the media. And I think that what I was told and what I saw at the 20th, 25th Airborne Brigade is roughly more or less what is the standard in uh, the Ukrainian military. And um, I saw casualties come in. So, um, you know, it's just, and uh, I had the opportunity to see the treatment myself and talk to, you know, the ambulance driver, the nurse, the uh, receiving doctor. And in general, what seems to happen is the is the following: um, a soldier is hit, and he is by whatever means possible. Uh, well, first, of course, he's given first aid and uh, moved away from the line by whatever means possible, as quickly as possible. And he is met by an ambulance. Um, the ambulance is a soft-skinned vehicle; it's not armored, and it's driven by uh, you know, in my one, in one of my uh, interviewees. Uh, a reservist a guy was in the construction industry, but uh, he got called up and they put him in an ambulance. This ambulance uh, is a foreign donated ambulance. Uh, the people inside the ambulance certainly know the basic emergency skills and the time between the soldier being hit to the time that the soldier gets into the ambulance varies because there's can be fire coming in and so on. But there's not a problem with getting the ambulance there or having it ready, providing the information comes in. In general, within a half an hour, certainly the ambulance is on station. It can be faster, but it's about a 15-kilometer drive over a pretty bad road, asphalt, but just pitted and just damaged, damaged. And um, the ambulance's job is to get the soldier the wounded soldier, um, or the driver's actually job in the cruise, to either a casualty clearing station, if he's not badly hit, or the city hospital, which is just, uh, there's there's a town nearby, and it's uh, got a, what the Ukrainians call a fully equipped hospital. I know that there are Western uh, medical professionals who might disagree, but you know, the Ukrainians are getting the job done. So you can debate about whether or not they're really doing a good job or not. But in any case, that hospital has been beefed up with equipment and staff, some military, some civilian. And uh, if it's a severe case, a critical case, the uh, wounded soldier is taken directly to the hospital and work is done. I didn't visit a hospital, but I, that particular hospital, but I've seen others. And uh, in, a, in a simple sense, they're probably prepared to handle 90 to 95 percent of the kind of injuries that you know you would have on a battlefield. But there's going to be the five percent they're not equipped for, and you know, fortunately, 95 percent of the time they don't need it. Um, I was at the casualty clearing station, and that's uh, for treatment of, of wounded soldiers who do not require invasive surgery. So you know, like a, a closed fracture, but not an open fracture. And you know, I watched them get registered. I watched them. The ones that I saw, most of them had been uh, caught in a very big explosion. The suspicion being a, a bomb dropped by an airplane. But in any case, so they were all concussion cases. A couple of them had, you know, a couple of them had uh, blood coming out of the air. Um, a couple, all of them uh, were 
dazed. And uh, so they were checked by uh, a nurse team. Uh, I saw five, I, I saw at one point five come in. There were three nurses. There were four, four doctors. I, don't, I couldn't, but there were at least three doctors. The nurses were doing all the work and uh, it's, I'm not, I'm not a nurse, but it seemed like they knew what they were doing. They certainly weren't panicking. They uh, you know, gave them the top to the bottom. They checked for the injured organs. They did tests to, you know, with, with their fingers to see if the, the, the soldier's eyes were focusing. They put in an IV. All of these guys were in pain. They put, uh, uh, I, I don't know what kind of painkiller they put in through the IV, but it clearly worked very fast. Um, a couple of the soldiers uh, uh were good and were strong enough to sit up and one was even strong enough to stand up after about 10 minutes uh, of this a couple more you know were in real distress and uh, they the nurses were uh, primary to what they seemed to be doing was going back to the soldier and checking to see if the painkillers were helping or not uh, it seemed like it, that there was all the medical uh, expendables that uh, one might need for some so swabs and alcohol and you know gloves they had more than enough there were boxes and boxes of it donated from what looked like be like half of europe and uh, just they would never run out it seemed like um i didn't see any analytical you know any any um sophisticated uh, machines that i might expect to see in a emergency receiving ward in a let's say a hospital in the united states um that being said I wouldn't even know what to look for, but it didn't look like on TV or anything. I did see one nurse using um, what I just happened to know to be a uh, the, like the Soviet version of an EKG machine that uh, checks the heartbeat. And it was, I mean, it doesn't atta attaches to the chest with these little rubber kind of deflatable bulbs that stick onto the chest through suction. And, uh, and then, you know, the nurse listened with a stethoscope and, uh, she seemed to get some information about the soldier's heart. She checked several times. So it seemed to be giving information, but there was no printout. Um, I didn't see, um, what are the, I forget what those things are called, that if you have a heart stop and you want to shock the heart back into work, you'll know what I'm talking about. Defibrillator, um, yes. Yeah, true. Defibrillator. I didn't see anything like that. Um, maybe there was one there. Maybe there wasn't. I just don't know. Um, but after about 30 minutes, it seemed you know, clearly they had processed uh, the uh, wounded and uh, the next thing they did uh, was they the nurse sat down with one of the doctors and made sure that all of the information was accurate you know names I guess blood types uh, where the guy was from what the thing you know what what, what the you know what was wrong with the patient and um, and they were writing it down they weren't entering it into a computer they were just you know pens and paper and so on in a logbook. So, and at one point, actually, uh, the executive officer, the number two in the brigade, uh, was there, and there had been a slight mix-up in some of the data about the soldiers. And, uh, I mean, I'm a foreign journalist, and it didn't seem to, I mean, he was on the phone right away talking to somebody, and the message was, you have to get this information right. We can't have people coming in here with different information than what you told us. It has to be consistent because that's you know how we receive it. All in all, it, uh, it probably wasn't the worst mass casualty that they've ever dealt with. It seemed pretty clear that this was for them a fairly routine day, day where they processed eight soldiers while I was there over the course of about an hour. 
thank you for that uh, absolutely concise description of what you've seen, Stefan. Just for a second, you can uh, follow us on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Amazon Music, on Stitcher, on Spotify. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating on the platform that you are listening on because it helps us and me and Stefan go up the searchability ratings. So I'm uh, with Stefan Korshak. Uh, Stefan's in Kiev. We had an amazing discussion so far about the general situation, your first-hand experience of witnessing a, a casualty clearing station and medical support to the front line. What do you need out there, other, other than obviously tanks, missiles and, and other such things, but uh, from a humanitarian perspective, what do you think the country needs most? Because here in the US, there are campaigns everywhere. There, we are sending medical equipment. Organizations are sending ambulances from the US, Europe, everywhere. Is there something on your sort of uh, need list right now that we can think about? I'll just keep it narrow. There's lots of things. I mean, uh, you can't really be a war correspondent, not a little bit be a military geek. So I could, I could talk to you about all the spiffy weapons that would be cool for the Ukrainians <laughs> to have. I'm not going to bother. But I will say this. Uh, I saw that uh, I spent some time because these guys were cool crawling over one of the ambulances that, that they used to evacuate the soldiers. It was a Renault traffic or a Peugeot traffic. But in any case, it was a French ambulance. And from what I could see, at least initially, it was, you know, properly equipped with all the drawers and, you know, IV stuff and so on. But it's a soft vehicle and it's designed for hard roads. And it had clearly been used very hard and uh, the suspension was going. And uh, one of the ambulance drivers had taken flak vests, you know, some body armor and hung it on the, the passenger window and hung another one on the driver's window and closed the window and then put a couple more on the seat. And the idea was that uh, these things are completely unarmored and uh, at least that would be, you know, armor the driver a little bit. An example for you. Actually, one story and one point, therefore, I remember back in the days of uh, the former Yugoslavia, we are driving up to Varesh. We're in a, in a convoy of uh, British Army warrior armoured personnel carriers with the infantry in. We're in the medical unit in Land Rovers. And so when they closed down and pulled their hatches, we closed the windows. So I get your yeah. point. I can visualise exactly what you've just said. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, one of the signs, I mean, one of the textbook signs of an experienced soldier or hack reporter or civilian even in this war is the absolute deep respect running to total terror of artillery. Uh, it's difficult to communicate h how uh, dangerous it is, how it can be anywhere at any time, and how your only real defense to against it is uh, to have something thick in between you and the explosion. And that's not even a perfect solution, but it's the only thing you can do. And uh, it's, I mean, compared to bullets, it's like most most people if uh, in the war, if they had only to worry about being shot, <laughs> hey, this is a nice day. And uh, it's, you, 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 that's the worry. And whatever you can do to like deal with that, that, that would help, I think. So if you're listening to this, and we'll make sure a lot of people do listen to this, whether you're a government or whether you're a, a vehicle manufacturer, clearly an up-armoured, all-wheel drive, 4x4 ambulance 
that can actually do that that first line evacuation from the from the casualty collection point back to the dressing station back to the, the sort of next line is something that will help save not only the patient but also the crew and so that's uh, that's our ask of the day Stefan we'll make sure that gets out to people that need to hear it I can tell you that I was at a brigade a brigade is about 3000 guys and uh, actually the unit is in relatively good condition there's lots of volunteers and um they haven't been taking hideous casualties so you know probably they have 2500 and there's probably a good 12 to 1300 on the line and uh, i was at the clearing station that uh, is supposed to handle anybody hurt within that unit they had five ambulances all of them were soft-skinned you know so you know you replace those then you've got uh, 1,200 guys on the line and another, let's say, 1,200 to 1,400 people not on the line, and you've made their life a little bit safer. I mean, but really, you've done it. So let, let me put my British Army military medical hat on. So we need Bradley armoured personnel carrier ambulances. We need FV432 ambulances. We need up-armoured Humvees. If you've got them, Stefan knows where they can go. So uh, listen yeah. to that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that the Ukrainians would be, they, they would do about 99% of the needed job with a an armored van that uh, is off-road capable. I mean, yeah, great, a Bradley would be terrific, but then there would always be the temptation to go use it to kill Russians somehow. But a van... You know, it's just like, you know, they, they, they would figure out the rest of it. They would equip it. They would man it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like they have a saying in the war that uh, vehicles are not a permanent item. It's an expendable item. And the lighter the vehicle, the faster it gets expended. Those are wise words. Stefan, we're, uh, we're up on time. So uh, I want to thank you so much for taking your Saturday morning to, uh, to talk to me here in, uh, in the U.S., if we want to follow you, how can we do that? You can uh, search me, um, Stefan Korshak, S-T-E-F-A-N-K-O-R-S-H-A-K. And I'm on Stack, and I'm on Medium, and I'm on Facebook. And uh, also, you can uh, read uh, not just me, but a whole lot of uh, reporting about Ukraine in my newspaper, Kiev Post newspaper, and it's spelled K-Y-I-V-P-O-S-T. Look it up. We're going to do that. We're going to put it in the show notes. Uh, I'm certainly uh, a, a daily consumer of your uh, of your blogs, Stefan. So thank you so much for painting the picture that you do. And I hope others that uh, will start to follow you too and obviously uh, give you the support that both you, uh, the newspaper, the people and the country need. For now, Stefan, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed it. Please, uh, you know, got any more questions? Glad to talk. You have a great Welcome. day. Maybe we'll come back in a, in, a, in a month or two. But you can also uh, follow me over on uh, LinkedIn. You can find me there. I'm also on Twitter at UKRobL1. This has been an amazing edition of uh, EMS One Stop. I've been Rob Lawrence. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.